It's time for my next episode of Recovery and Addiction Conversations, or whatever the name of this podcast is. As, I, as I've mentioned before, if you've listened to any of my podcasts, when I start becoming interested in this concept of recovery, right, I admit that I've, I've got a problem. <laughs> I should have known it long before I did, but it took me what it took me, and, you know, I had stopped drinking and, and doing drugs. Um, so I start finding my way to people, um, sort of slowly but surely. And in my case, uh, I went with the Starbucks of recovery, and that is AA. There's one on every corner at every hour, and they're mostly consistent. Um, and it's where the people are that drank and did drugs like I do. And I found it to be an important part and continues to be an important part of my life. You know, my sponsor, um, who I will interview at some point, um, you know, he said to me, hey, hey, Brett, one thing that I do and one of the things he did so well was he always talked about what he did as opposed to, Brett, you should. <laughs> and I do, I try to do the same because it works better for me. And um, Anyway, he said, when I hear somebody sharing relapse stories, I pay extra attention. And that has served me. So I think of people that share le- relapse stories in meetings as heroes Um, They are sharing some things with me that will hopefully help me prevent a relapse, that my condition, my disease is dormant and ready to rock. So what I mean by that, and this is a saying you hear in um, recovery circles is this concept of, you know, I'm sober, but my my disease is doing push-ups in the corner, right? It's getting ready for me to make a slip. So this is my friend Jim. And uh, Jim and I met when I moved to this, this area, which is uh, near Tacoma, and walked into the local AA meeting. Um, his story is one that I, that I hear from time to time, and it's got a longer distance, meaning he was sober a long time, and then he tried drinking. It's waiting for me, and uh, stories like this help me. So hopefully you'll dig it. Here comes Jim and I's conversation on on his story around relapse. Here we go. You know, when I think about cool stories, you know, yours is a unique one. And so we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. And I don't know exactly how it'll go, but I have a general sense of it. Sure. Well, one of the things that since, since the beginning of me going into, you know, in in my case, going into the rooms of AA and being around other people, I'm, I'm, I'm just naturally looking for patterns and evidence, right? I'm looking for things for me to learn from that seem to be not just a one off, but, repeats. And and one of them that, that's that, that I've come to understand and and I have to believe with everything I got is if I take a sip or if I test my disease by testing it by, I don't know, figuring I'll just have a, you know, fill in the blank. I've heard so many, the the beer at the baseball game, the uh, beer after the lawnmower. um, And, you know, we're going to get to yours in a second here. Sure. But the storyline and the pattern is pretty consistent. It doesn't go well. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's needless to say. <laughs> so yours jumps out because you have your story has a significant period of, of sobriety. And a right. lot of people you hear the other story you hear a lot of is, well, I, you know, I'd already been sober for X number of years, two years, one year, blah, 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 and I thought I had it. You know, right. came this thing and then I tested it and then so on and so forth. But yours is like incrementally larger. So that's my yeah. lead up, Jim. Can you talk a little bit about your story and, and what happened? Sure, sure. Well, you know, my story, of course, like a lot of people, I'm 
I'm 69 years old now. Um, a lot of people's stories started when they were quite young. Um, because when you're young, you're pretty invulnerable, pretty yeah, invulnerable to anything bad that can happen to you. Try anything, try everything. And I think something that uh, also worked in favor of me going down the wrong road was the era that I grew up in. Um, I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, that drug scene was just popping onto the popular culture. Um, so, you know, anything went. And I started experimenting pretty early, you know, uh, marijuana and uh, alcohol in high school. Um, <clears throat> I didn't really get to be consistent, though, until I was in my college years. And, you know, everybody parties at college. So I jumped right in. And um, essentially, there wasn't, you know, I can't put a finger on there being a real problem in my life at that point due to my use of substances um, other than maybe I could have accomplished more. Maybe if I hadn't been partying so much at college, maybe I'd be a surgeon by now or something, <laughs> but I can confidently assess that that would not be a good choice for me. But, uh, you know, I'm the kind of person that would have been pretty stressed out in a high, high stress job. So I, I ended up where I needed to be. So that's good. Um, finished college and continued the pattern of partying because I was still single. Good uh, five years after college and um one of the things that started to crop up in my life back then was I, I wasn't able to hold a meaningful relationship with anybody you know I'd get involved in a relationship with people and uh with women and they would inevitably fall apart basically due to what I perceive today as um two two characteristics that I had at that time. One was a very self-indulgent, hedonistic view of how my behavior should be. And the other was um, that I just couldn't uh, connect or um, get close to anybody um, and let myself be close to people. So, you know, I think I attribute that to the fact that I was either high or drunk a lot um, in my life at that time. Anyway, I would say I stayed single until I was in my early 30s. But in my early 30s, I met a woman that I got very close to. And um, we were, got closer than anybody I'd ever gotten close to before. And ended up that um, she uh, had a child already from a previous marriage. And we ended up marrying in the early 30s. And I think with uh, probably with the stress of, of uh, having to be more giving and understanding and also caretaking of this child, I, I stressed out so much that, you know, my, my use amplified and it became really clear at that time that, that I was not in control and our marriage wasn't going to last if I kept up the poor behavior, which, you know, gone a lot, not being dependable, lying, all that kind of stuff that goes along with, with alcoholism. <clears throat> So actually, it just was a mutual agreement that, you know, I, I cared enough about the relationship that it was a mutual agreement that I was going to go into therapy and and get cried out because I tried to stop and I couldn't do it. You know, it was um, just something I couldn't stick to, you know, like everybody's story. You know, it wasn't real traumatic or anything. And 
whatever, but it just, I couldn't stick to it. So I went into a treatment program. Um, probably, I guess I was in my mid thirties at that time. And, and, uh, it worked. I, the, you know, the nice thing about the treatment programs for me that, that didn't work just because I couldn't do it just going to AA because I was too much on my own accord. You know, I just had to be honest when I went to AA and if I lied, nobody caught me. But, you know, when you have to give urine samples, you've got a thumb on you. And uh, that's what I needed at that time. I needed somebody to catch me if I was bad. You know? <laughs> so, so anyway, it worked. I, you know, went through the treatment program. And uh, in my mid-30s, I got clean and sober. And uh, the story from there until I was, uh, oh my gosh, i got to think about age-wise now, you know. Well, the, until about 12 years ago, I suppose. I was clean and sober. I raised my son, uh, had a great relationship, had a great family life. Everything was going good. My job was going good. And uh, then, you know, my son moved away from home. And I guess probably what happened was, you know, and I just try to psychologically analyze myself on this. Um, one of the things that happened was one of my higher powers disappeared. You know, one of the things that I was using as a base for staying sober was no longer there. Um, so, um, but, you know, I still didn't go back to it. But what I did do, I, well, I need to back up now. So I live on a seven-acre piece of property, and part of my property is an apple orchard. And one of the things I do regularly is grow apples and uh, squeeze cider out of the apples and have cider. And I have cider still today every morning for breakfast. And <laughs> um but back then, about 12 years ago, I got the idea that, gosh, you know, I'm making enough cider now. I could make a profit off of this if I turned it into something people wanted to buy. And I did the calculation in my head, which was, let's see, at $5 a gallon or $50 a gallon if I had alcohol in it. <laughs> so I decided, well, what I'll do is I'll just start making hard cider, bottle it, and maybe I can get good enough at it that I could start marketing that. and. And, you know, actually, I, I got away with doing that for, oh, I don't know, maybe a year. Um, but then I decided, you know, go ahead. I so, can see so what how, the questions. So how long are you sober at this point, oh, Jim? okay. 24 years. So you're 24 years sober. And real quick through there, does so you talked about, you know, your son was a big uh, cornerstone. But yeah. what about the cravings and the obsession of the mind? Was it pretty much absent or did it cross your mind from time uh, to time? Yeah, no, my experience is that those cravings, and, and, and this is something that people who are newly sober, I, I try to impress upon them that um, um, that, that goes away. Um, it takes a while, but it goes away. You know, I, and I, I, I often break it down into uh, two uh, categories, too, you know, because there's, there's the physical obsession, the... Um, and then there's the psychological obsession, okay? And then there's a social obsession. And all of those are different aspects to the things that you crave. Um, and they go away, and it takes different amounts of time for them to go away. The, the actual physical obsession, the actual getting sick and feeling bad physically because I'm not getting my alcohol, that goes away within, you know, a week or so, you know, after you get, get it out of your system. The uh, psychological obsession takes a little bit longer. You know, it, it's, I, I put it in the words of months. You know, if if a guy can make it six to, to eight months, you know, those 
that stinking thinking, as they call it in AA, starts to go away and get replaced with a little bit more rational thought processes. So, you know, the, the newcomer is going to have to have to, you know, stick it out through that, you know, with that part of it. The social obsession, I think, takes years to go away. Um, you know, you you've established a pattern in your life with your friends and your family where you do things a certain way during the holidays and um, and it really takes a long time to change that. It, it, it's hard to to get new friends. And that's one of the things that really did change for me. You know, I, I went from a group of, gosh, 15 people were my best friend down to one or two, you know, because the only thing we had in common was the partying, you know, the, the drinking. And so that takes a while. That takes a long time to go away. So, but I would say that after a year or two, um, couple of years, at least a year, but more probably. That went away and I established a new pattern of living. And that new pattern of living uh, was taught to me by, by Alcoholics Anonymous. They taught me um, how to approach the world in a way that was different from the way that I used to approach it in the past. And that we can go into those things later if we want to. But um, anyway, to answer your question directly, then after a couple of years, no, it wasn't hard at all. Um, and I, you know, at that point, it's probably a dangerous time for a lot of people because the little devil's still back there. You know, he's still living in the back of your head, but he's just dormant, just waiting for his chance. So getting back to the story, um, I'm making alcoholic cider and I decide, you know, the only way that I'm really going to be able to tell if I'm making a good product is if I at least taste it and I'll spit it out, you know, because that, that'll be okay. I, I know wine connoisseurs do that kind of thing all the time. So there's no, no nothing bad about that. That's not going to, going to, well, I cut a long story short, it didn't take more than a couple of days before that little sip went down my throat. And I thought, well, you know, that little sip isn't going to affect me. So I, it's not going to get me drunk or give me any of the effects that the alcohol did. So, you know, that's not hurting anything. But, you know, the insidious thing was that, you know, one little sip went to two little sips. And, you know, I guess probably within a month of starting that thought process, I was drinking glasses of cider. And then within, um, I would say, six months, I was drinking bottles of the cider at one sitting. And then within probably a year after that, I was drinking fifths of the hard alcohol. And um, <clears throat> it happened without my even being aware of it. It just was a natural progression for the disease to just immediately start to reinfect my social psychological and physical being. And um, at that point, then I went on about a five or six year jag and went back to the same old patterns, but much, much worse. A lot of lying, a lot of hiding things, you know, coming up with tricks to keep my wife from knowing about it, uh, arguing, um, yeah, just all the bad things that make relationships not work. And, you know, I never was the one that went out into society and got into a lot of trouble, drunk driving or or getting into brawls at the bar and that kind of stuff. But I just was not a good person to be with. Um, 
again, hedonistic, self-centered, that kind of thing. Uh, the, the physical cravings were so intense the second time around. Um, they were so bad that I felt like I couldn't even manage them. I didn't even, it wasn't even me in control of it. I would, I would wake up in the morning and I'm sure everybody's heard this story before. And I would tell myself that I'm not going to drink anymore. I know I, can, I can't, and I'm just not gonna, I'd go to work. I would get off work. I say, I'm not going to drink. It was a left-hand turn to go home and a right-hand turn to the liquor store. And when I got to that turn, I turned right. It just happened every time. And I went right to the liquor store and bought a bottle, started drinking it. And I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop. Thank God my wife is one of the, the, the most caring, loving, giving people, understanding people in the world. After one of my really, really bad nights, she, she just said, you're really, really feeling terrible right now. I'm going to use this opportunity to drag you down to the treatment center. <laughs> she did and uh, took me in and they evaluated me and I went through the program again and uh, it worked again. I had the thumb on me for, I don't remember how long the treatment program lasts, somewhere between six and eight months for me, I think. And with the thumb on me, I got the physical crap out of my system again. And with that out of my system, I was able to start going to AA and start working on the psychological part of it, getting my thinking processes going in the right way again. And luckily, socially, I didn't have to change much because that pattern had been established and hadn't been reestablished in the period that I started. I was so much older, you know, that I just didn't have young people make friends and get into social situations so easily, but older people don't so much. So they stay home and watch TV, so <laughs> fall asleep drunk. So, so anyway, that's kind of the way my story went. Um, it's the classic example of uh, that they tell you in AA all the time that, uh, you know, you just can't take that first one. And if you do, it's going to be a whole lot worse than it was before. So I'm uh, living, walking proof of that. But now, you know, I'm approaching, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, but seven or eight years of sobriety. And I'm not one to want to count. So I quit counting. I just want to live it. And uh, um, yeah, it's going good now. So. Yeah. Well, I know how long it is because we share. The I know. You can tell me, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> One year less than you. We yeah. share a birthday, I know. Yeah, which is cool. And I, you know, I, was, I felt really fortunate to have met you these years back when I moved to this town. And um, and your story stuck with me. I, as uh, most relapse stories stick with me, I heard, you know, my early sponsor said, Hey, Brett, when somebody shares a relapse story, you sit up on the edge of your seat, my friend, and you listen careful. Yeah. Um, and that stuck with me and, and he was right. And, and what that's done for me is like, I use this visual of, you know, like the, 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 the meter for me is I'm a hundred percent sure that I'm a, an alcoholic and I'm a hundred percent sure yeah. that if I take a sip, I'm in trouble. Right. That thing comes up even a little bit. I'm in big trouble, Jim. And right. so like you, you know, shares a story like that, particularly when you have that much sobriety, Right. Right. And the pattern is the same as the guy who I just talked to, who's gotten his one year coin. He's, you know, Absolutely. and they, they, I'm king of the hill. I got this. Yeah. It's just one millimeter to right back where you started again. Yeah. yeah. So. 
Well, it's good to be sober today, ain't it? Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, any other any other parting words? Like uh, when you think back on that as an example of somebody who's you know spent some time, a significant amount of time sober, you know, mm-hmm. going to baseball games, going to family functions, not partaking in booze. Did I, the the one spot that if you're up for it that I'd love to drill in on a little bit is sure. when so so you you. Your your decision making. So, so for me, so for for me, I, I I'm scared to death of getting any in my system. Like I I, I I'm genuinely afraid because I don't want that story. Right. But it, but you probably weren't there when you thought, hey, I could probably just have a sip and spit it out, right? Right. Was there a part of you that was maybe cautionary at that point, or were you pretty much, yeah, it's no big deal? Or, or was there a part of you that you had, was there a hurdle there that you had to step over? <laughs> Good question. Um, and I don't know if I have an answer for that because it's been a while now. Um, <clears throat> I would say no, there wasn't a big hurdle. That's probably the dangerous thing for me. There wasn't a big hurdle. Um, and I can't really elucidate on that anymore, except <sighs> I just wasn't talking to myself about the things I should be talking to myself about, I suppose. Um, I, I have a bad habit of not going to AA enough, I think, and I still have that bad habit. But um, the and, and I guess the good part about going to AA is the upfront, in-your-face, you know, reality of it on a constant basis. Um, the thing for me that, that keeps me sober is the uh, the way of living, you know, the way of thinking more than the way of living, even the way of thinking. And I, I put a lot of credence into that uh, um, idea that you need a higher power, but I'm not a real into God type guy, you know, so a higher power for me is a lot more ambiguous than it is for most people. And it has to be kind of turned around a little bit that I'm not the higher power and everything outside of me is. And I don't have to be in control of it, you know? So, and that's, that's, that's the key to a lot of my anxieties in my life that causes me to want to escape is the idea that I need to have control of everything. You know, something bad is going to happen if I don't. And that's not true. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I do think that this is a concept that that I've been fascinated by for a long time. I know I know two of you personally. I know one. There's one other dude that comes to that meeting. I don't know if you met him, Keith. Did you meet Keith? Uh, probably. And the name's ringing a bell, but I can't think of him. There were there were a few Keiths, but he showed up with a leg brace because he'd wrapped his car around a telephone pole, and he he oh, okay. he put in like uh, he put in like twenty one, twenty two years, and the similar deal, you know that, you know I I like to say the big book has it right, cunning, baffling, powerful. Mm-hmm. Where I think it's missing, if I if I had a chance to chat with Bill and Bob, I would say add the word patient. And yeah. as a matter of fact, if it were my version of it, it would be add the word words fucking patient because. <laughs> Because because yeah. the, the truth is, is that I just see this enough. I don't have it in my story, Jim, but I just see it enough that it's just so you know, common. It's like this is not just a willpower thing 
or whatever, it suddenly takes us back over. It's like, welcome back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I will say in my, my early dealings with it, I didn't experience the physical craving like I did the second time around. Um, it was just overpowering. So, in fact, I think probably whatever it is that's inside of us that causes that grows just continues to grow as we grow. It just doesn't affect us unless we let the alcohol in. It's kind of like the key that opens the door, but it's still in the closet growing. So. Right. <laughs> okay, another podcast in the can. Uh, thank you, Jim, for sharing your story with with me and and others um, that are listening in. Um, I think it's a really important concept, and uh, you know this idea that no matter how long we're sober, the the disease of of addiction and alcoholism is is dormant and lying in wait is is really important. So thank you. Um, as I send this podcast out into the world, I'm recording this outro on a Sunday morning, and I'm sober. And for any of the folks out there that are in recovery. You know, you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. To to be sober on a on a weekend morning is is profound, and I'm super grateful to have found my window of opportunity out of that mess. And uh, and now I just got to make sure I keep it. So, hope you enjoyed the podcast. I'll be dropping these out every so often. And uh, if you or your loved ones have some issues with drugs or alcohol, or you just want to learn more for yourself. Visit shatterproof.org as a great place to start. Until next podcast, thank you so much.